charismatic in me thought of changing the sermon a little bit, you know, about the God that shows up at the last hour, you know. Um, but <laughs> I decided not to go that route and to stick to um, what I believe sort of would be a, a good scripture to consider. So today we'll be in Psalms chapter 25. Um, it's one of, of, of my favorite Psalms and one that I have been meditating upon for a long time and that has been useful for me across several stages within my Christian walk. Um, and, and before we go into it, as I was preparing and, and some of the thoughts that, have, that came into my mind as I was preparing this is, have you considered for a minute sometimes the, the purpose of some of the miracles that you see in the Gospels? That as you survey the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see in several of these areas, in several of these parts, that Jesus finds people in these very difficult situations, right? You have a lame man who has, who has never walked in his life. You have blind people that he heals. You have a woman who has had an issue of blood for many different years. And you have all of these miracles that Jesus Christ comes up in difficult and, and painful situations, and he just miraculously heals these people. And as you, as you think about it, there are two reasons that, at least two reasons, I'm sure there's more that you can think about, but I think there are at least two reasons that you can think about as to why we see these in the Gospels. I think the first one, Pastor Lelo often mentions, right, it's to authenticate the message of Jesus Christ and to authenticate that he is indeed one that has come from God and that that which he speaks is the truth that comes from him. But I think there's a second truth, particularly if you look at the, the circumstances that these people find themselves in. There's a second truth that also brings into these, that in all of these healings and in all of these miracles, you have paintings and portrayals of the gospel itself. Because in these, you have a man or a woman who finds themselves in a situation where they cannot help themselves. You have a, a dead man, a blind man, a deaf person, a person who's struggling from a sickness that no human being or human doctors are able to heal. And then through faith, suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ is able to heal them. That even with us, as we are human beings dead in our uh, uh, trespasses and sins, as we look upon Jesus Christ in faith, there is this thing that pulls us towards him and gives us life right? We find ourselves in a circumstance of sin that we cannot heal ourselves, that we can do nothing about, but by his power and through laying hold of him through faith, we are able to receive the healing, the life that we need. And even in, if you look at all of these different miraculous healings, Jesus Christ usually does highlight the faith of the people that he heals. Oftentimes he asks the people, do you believe that I can do this? Do you have faith that I can do this? That he's pointing also in those different areas the importance of faith in the gospel, the importance of faith in this new covenant, the importance of faith in this message that he is bringing. And I think as you survey them, you begin to be anchored on the important role that faith plays in the life of a believer. And I think Psalm chapter 25 is one that really puts through the example of David this, the importance of this faith that we need to have in the Lord Jesus Christ and how we ought to lay hold of it and not lay hold of him rather through this faith. In Psalm 25, which is sort of thought to be written in the later parts of David's life as he reflects upon his youth, we begin to see in him after all the victories, after all the corporate and personal trials that he has fought, all the struggles that God has brought him through, the many sins that he has committed before God, we begin to see an example as he looks back of a life that is lived based on faith in the Lord. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a long psalm, so 
Um, we'll read it as we go through it. But this psalm primarily has two sections, right? You have a section that is mainly prayers. So you have four prayers, and then you have three meditations of his heart. So he has three parts in this psalm where he's praying and bringing four different requests unto God. And then there are three times where you see him take a break from those requests and meditate upon certain truths in the scriptures. And I would like for us to consider three of these prayers, and then we'll also consider the the, the purpose of, of these devotions. So in Psalm chapter 25, Let's read verses 1 to 3 as a start, and then we can sort of consider the others. And this is, verses 1 to 3 is really an introductory prayer that sets the basis of what he's going to be praying about um, in the rest of the psalm. So, Psalm chapter chapter 25, sorry, from verse 1 to 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are want only treacherous. Now, in the first verse, I want you to look at something and the wording that David uses to use, chooses to use here. He says, he opens up the psalm by saying, Lord, to you I lift up my soul. I want you to see what, what David opens up the psalm with. It's not, Lord, to you I lift up my requests. It's not simply to you, to you, Lord, do I lift up some of my needs or do I lift up certain areas of my life? But in saying to the Lord that I lift up my soul, he's saying to him that I'm bringing unto you my very essence, that the very person of who I am, everything that has to do with me, I take and I entrust unto you. David, in using these words, is picturing himself and painting a picture of how he is dedicating and devoting his entire life, his entire heart, his entire being unto the Lord and using that and, and putting it completely in his hands. In the second verse, he also, he, he, he paints this picture again, or he repeats this in, in, in different words where he says, oh my God, in you I trust, right? So he opens up the psalm by painting this picture of himself dedicating and putting his life before the Lord and asking the Lord to be the one to whom he lifts up his soul to and he completely entrusts himself unto him. And in the, sec- in the second part of verse 2, you begin to see that this is not just David simply entrusting himself unto him, but there is also a sense of desperation in this, right? Listen to what he says. He said, let me not be put to shame. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you needed somebody to pull through for you so much and you just tell them, please don't disappoint me? Because you are at that place where if this person is to let you down, there is no other hope. This is the picture that David is painting in this. He's saying, to you, Lord, do I lift up my soul. To you, Lord, do I dedicate and bring the very essence of who I am. And if you do not do for me that which I request for you in this, I have no other hope. There is no other person that I can turn to. So in addition to me bringing myself unto you, I ask that you do not disappoint me. There is a sense of desperation and a desperate need for God to move in his life that we see um, as he speaks in this psalm. And then in verse 3, he begins to take a step back from the prayer. And as I had mentioned, begins to come into some of the meditations where he says, he pauses for a minute in verse 3 where he says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be put to shame who are one only treacherous. 
Because David understands and realizes the magnitude of what he is doing in entrusting himself completely unto God, he takes a moment to remind himself that this is indeed a wise thing to do. That those who indeed do trust in the Lord are not put to shame. That God is indeed the one whom if you entrust your life unto, he will not put you to shame. And he has a 100% record of faithfulness to his promises for those who rest upon them. So now... Let's go quickly into verses 6 to 7. So David has just opened up the psalm by showing us his need and desperate need for God. And I believe in the rest of the psalm, David begins to unpack the specific areas or the specific ways in which he needs God and he needs to see the hand of God move in his life. And because these prayers are scattered across the psalm, we are going to sort of take them together and not look at them in, in, in necessarily sequence, but go into the specific verses where we see him praying for these, this, these certain things. The first, this, the first or the second prayer, I guess, that details out what David is looking for, we see in verses 6 to 7, in verse 11, and in verse 16 to 18. Let's read them together. Verses 6 to 7. Lord, your, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Let's go to verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Verses 16 to 18. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lowly and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my afflictions and my trouble and forgive all my sins. In these three separate areas of the psalm, we see David coming to God with a simple prayer of the forgiveness of his sins. We see a man who is so burdened by his sins, a man who is so afflicted by his sins that he brings them unto God. And the first area in which he needs God to move is in forgiving him of all of his sins. And I want you to consider the word choices that he uses, particularly in verses 16 to 18. He says that he is lonely. He says that he is afflicted. He says that consider my ways and my troubles and forgive me of my sins. Through these words and through how he portrays himself, you see that David looks at his sin and the burden, or rather David is significantly and severely burdened by the sins that he has committed before the Lord. That sin to him is not simply a bunch of mistakes that can be swept under the carpet. That these are not just certain things that can be forgotten. These are not just certain things that can be put in the past and forgotten as if they never happened. But as he reflects upon his youth, as he reflects upon the many grievous sins that he has done in the past, he is broken about them and he's brought to a point of contrition. And that leads him to a place of brokenness. And we can also see this by the fact that he repeats it three times. Three times in one psalm, David brings one request before God. That shows the extent of the brokenness, of the heaviness, of the sins that he feels upon his life. And I think there's a lesson for us to learn here. As we live in a world that continues to make it seem, or, or particularly to call that which is sinful righteous, or that be, continues to belittle sin and make it seem like it's nothing but it's not much of a big deal, right? And they make it seem as if, yes, I do some certain sins, but what's it to you? What's it to anyone? 
But that is a wrong way of thinking. And I think David here and his brokenness over his sin shows us that sin is indeed a grievous offense against the holy God. And we must be broken over it. We must be broken over it. As G spoke about in, when we were starting the Sermon on the Mount in, 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 in Matthew chapter 5, as the, the Jesus opens up that Sermon on the Mount and he opens it up with the Beatitudes, one of the ones that he speaks about is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's speaking there about those who mourn over their sin. He's speaking there about those who are broken over their sin because they realize the extent of the offense that these are to their holy and the righteous God that they serve. Brothers and sisters, may we never come to a place where we belittle our sin because in so doing, we are belittling the holiness of God. We are painting a picture that God is not as holy as he is. We are painting a picture that God is not as righteous as he is. We are painting a picture that sin is not as as important as it is um, in our lives. And we should never in our lives allow ourselves to go in through that. But we should always be seeking from the Lord to grow and to increase in our repentance and brokenness over our sins. But there's a second thing that I think is even more important for us to consider in this psalm and in this part of the psalm. That once David is confronted in his conscience by the sinfulness of his youth and his actions, once he realizes the true extent of his offense towards God, his first attempt is not to find another way of engineering or or another way of, of making himself look righteous before God. He doesn't find good deeds that he can quickly do in order to cancel out his sins. He doesn't go out into his memory bank and say, Lord, but remember the time I killed Goliath. Remember the time that I conquered the Philistines. He doesn't do any of that as a means of somehow trying to justify himself before God. But look at what he does. He throws himself upon the mercy and loving kindness of God. And this is all that we need to do once we are confronted with our sins. It is not for us to try and wipe ourselves. It's not up to us to try and make ourselves look clean. Like Isaiah, we must speak that our good deeds are but filthy rags before you, but throw ourselves completely upon the mercy and the loving kindness of God. Read verses 6 and 7 again. Listen to what he says. He says, remember me according to your mercy and your loving kindness. Remember not the sins of my past, According to your steadfast love, remember me. In verse 11, he speaks about for the sake of your name's sake, or for the sake of your mercy. David knows and understands that the forgiveness of his sins is only going to come because God has mercifully chosen to forgive him because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So therefore, he does not try to paint himself up as to be a good person. He doesn't try to somehow fashion in in one way or another good deeds that he can bring before God, but he simply throws himself upon the mercy of God. But I think there's something here that is also important to consider that David speaks as one who comes, and he comes with boldness before God as he makes these requests. He comes with, with, with this understanding that he has the right to come before God with, to ask all of these things that he asks. But he does this before he has seen the full picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He does this without a full picture of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if David who doesn't have this full picture, is able to come before God with boldness, asking him for the forgiveness of his sins and knowing that God will forgive him because he is dependable, how much more confidence should we approach God when it comes to our sins? With how much more confidence, having seen the example of Jesus Christ on the cross, having seen all the evidence of how he bled and died, having a full picture through the closed Bible and the closed canon of Scripture, having this full picture of God and, and, and the Son of God as he dies on the cross for us, and of how much more, with how much more confidence should we come before 
this high priest of ours, who calls us daily to come before him with confidence and with boldness that we might receive grace and mercy for the time of need. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a true thing that we often need to think about and ponder, that it is sinful pride for us to think or to, to ponder upon ourselves or to think that there, is, there are sins that are too great to bring before him. It is sinful pride for us to think that we can't come before him in boldness because of the shame of our sin, because in doing so we are saying that the shame of our sin or the cost of our sin is far more than the blood of Jesus Christ. And that can never be true. Because what he has done is able to cover a multitude of sins. So let us go with him with a more sure confidence. And let us depend on him for the salvation and the forgiveness of sin that we need. Let's go to the next prayer that we see in verses 4 to 5. So in, in, the, in those first few verses, we see David praying and bringing a prayer unto the Lord for the forgiveness of his sins. But now let's look at verses 4 to 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. David brings prayers unto the Lord not only for the forgiveness of his sins, but he also comes to God with a prayer for the sanctification of his soul. He doesn't only depend on God to forgive him of his unrighteousness, but he also comes to God for the change and the transformation that is required in his life to strengthen him so that he may stop sinning. I want you to see the words that he uses in verses 4 to 5. He says, make me to know your ways. He is pointing towards an internal change that he wants the Lord to work in his heart. He's saying, God, yes, I need you to forgive my sins, but at the same time, I also need you to work in me so that the sins that I do, I may do no more. In the same way in which we depend on God for the forgiveness of our sins, we ought also to depend on him for the sanctification from our sins. That to understand that it is not from our works, it's not from our efforts, it's not from our ingenuity, it's not from all of these things that we will ever find victory over our sins, but it is he who has accomplished the victory on our behalf. It is not our efforts. Yes, we may put a lot of efforts, yes, we may do a lot of things to sort of help us to stay away from sin and to fight it, but ultimately the primary reason to which we will be able to live a life of obedience to God will be his working in our lives. And we need to only depend and trust in him. It is what is usually called a spirit-wrought obedience. It is an obedience within our hearts that is written there by the Holy Spirit. If you consider, for instance, um, Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel speaks about the new covenant. He speaks about God writing in us a new heart and giving us a new heart and removing the heart of stone. And in there, he speaks about that I will make you to walk in, my, in accordance to my commandments. That he will make us that he will write the obedience within us that we need, that he will write in us all that we need in order to live a life of obedience unto him. That it is his working in us that gives us the strength and the ability to work out our salvation. Just like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that, that, that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But in the very next verse he says, but it is he who works in us that we may live in accordance to his word. So, brothers and sisters, even as we depend on him for the forgiveness of our sins, let us not fail to depend on him also for the victory over our sins. Let us not fail to also depend and to cry unto him as we feel the anguish of all of the sins that burden us, to come to him begging him to give us victory over all of this, because without his working in us, there is nothing that we can work out. 
And I think one quote that I often hear that helps has helped me a long way in this is a quote that Augustine, um, that I heard, uh, that I read from Augustine, where he says, Lord, command what thou wilt and give what thou commandest. Where he's saying to God, command us to do whatever it is that you want us to do. Right? If God was to one day wake up and say we must all come to church wearing Springboks jerseys, everybody around the world for six months to celebrate the victory of the Springboks next week Saturday, that we ought, he, can, he has the right to, right? He has the right to command us everything that he will. But as you can imagine, for some people living in New Zealand, that will be a very hard commandment. And so in addition to him commanding us to do whatever he wants us to do, he ought also to give us that. He also also to give us the strength. He ought also to give us the obedience. He ought also to give us the wisdom to live in accordance with that very same commandment. So Lord, command what thou will, but give what thou commandest. Unless God gives us the strength to live in accordance to his commandment, we will forever fail to. The, th- the last prayer that we will look at is in verses 19 to verse, 20, verse 21. And it reads as follows. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O God, my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. As you read in, in the book of Kings and you read the latter parts of the book of Samuel, You begin to see that David's life was one that had a sequence of him being under many different trials, many different kings. His own son rises up against him to try and take him from the throne. And many different enemies that have risen up against him in order to dethrone him from the place that God has given him. But even in all of these, we see examples throughout the scriptures how David is able to bring the cares of his heart before the Lord how he is able to bring all the afflictions of his heart before the Lord. Every trouble, every king, every circumstance and situation that weighs heavy on his soul, he's able to bring unto God. And I will be honest with you, after sort of being, this is something that I have honestly struggled with in my life, after coming to the more reformed circles and coming from a more prosperity gospel center, I've found that I have difficulties coming to before God to pray for things that just pertain to my life. I found it difficult to come to God and say, God, I have needs that that relate to my life that I need because there's a voice in me that's saying, is this prosperity gospel? Are you coming to God for riches, health, and all of these different things? And that is something that is not godly. The same God who forgives us our sins is the same one who asks us to cast our cares upon him. He's the same God who asks us to bring every single need that we have upon him. Even as he teaches us how to pray, he includes this line that give us today our daily bread. The God who cares for our salvation also cares for our well-being. He also cares that we eat. He also cares for sustaining us. In Matthew chapter 6, as he speaks about sort of the fact that we shouldn't be overwhelmed by the cares of this world, he says, because your father knows that you have need of these things. He says, look unto the lilies, look unto the birds of the air. They do not toil or do anything like that, but the Lord gives them food. The Lord clothes them. Why? Because he does indeed care for us. So in the same way as we are able to come before God and depend on him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the victory of our sins, we can also come to him with whatever cares that we have in our lives. 
We can follow in the example of David and come to God with whatever troubles, whatever issues that pertain to our lives, whether it be in our marriage, in our work, in our friendships and relationships, in any issues, in our finances, in our schoolwork, we have that right to come before him and ask for him to help us and to give us, to give us the strength that we need in our lives. Let us not be blinded by some of these things. Let us not be too radical on either side that we begin to be forgetting the good things that the Lord has promised us. And then in closing, this will take two minutes, I promise. Back in my charismatic days, you would not have believed me, but this is going to take two minutes, I promise. In the last section, in the last thing that I just want to speak about are David's meditations. In verses 8 to 10 and verses 12 to 15, David meditates on several scriptural truths that relate to his request to the Lord. Verses 8 to 10, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in their way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his commandments and his testimonies. Verse 12 to 15, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for the one who fear him and he makes known to him his covenant. My eyes are ever upon the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. David takes several pauses within his prayers to meditate upon certain scriptural truths that are related to that the request that he's bringing unto the Lord. Now, why would David do this? Does he, for some odd reason, believe that God has forgotten his promises? Does he put these in here to remind the Lord of that which he has promised him? No. We know that God does not forget. But David reflects upon these truths in order to strengthen his own faith and trust in the Lord. He reflects upon these truths that the Lord will guide the humble, that he will teach the humble his way, that those who fear the Lord he will indeed instruct, and that their offspring will dwell in, in, in the land. He reflects on all of these truths, that his eyes are forever upon the Lord, and the Lord will plug his feet out of the net because he's trying to stir up his faith to depend and trust in the Lord for all that he is requesting him to. As we seek and endeavor to live a life of trust and dependence upon God, let us not undermine the role that his word plays in strengthening our faith in that. We cannot trust in the promises of God if we don't know them. We cannot trust in promises of God if we forget them. But if we remain daily in the scriptures, reminding ourselves of that which the Lord has accomplished on our behalf, it will give us the boldness that we need to come before his throne room and bring every single one of our requests unto him. Maybe we struggle with sin on our own because we have forgotten that we have such a great mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we fail to bring requests upon him with regards to our marriage, our schooling, and the desires of our hearts because we have forgotten that we have a high priest who cares for us and who calls us to daily bring our needs before him. The only way in which we, can, we will grow in our dependence, love, and faith and trust in Christ is if we continue to remind ourselves of these truths that are within the scriptures. So let us remember to daily meditate upon these. Even as we hear these sermons that, these, that our pastors and our elders preach, let us meditate upon them because they will indeed grow our faith and dependence upon the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given unto us. We thank you for this word that you have given unto us as you stir up our hearts to depend on you. Indeed, O oh Lord, unto you do we lift up our souls. 
And we do pray, Lord God, that in all the requests that we bring unto you that are in alignment with your word, that you would hear us. But that more than anything, O oh Lord, that you would stir up within us as a church a true faith and dependence upon you. That you would remind us, Lord God, that in this new covenant of grace, it is all of you and none of us, that no man shall boast, but that all glory shall go unto the Lord. So remind us of these truths, Lord Father, and help us to grow and increase in our faith. And Lord, wherever there is any form of sign of unbelief, Lord Father, we pray that you would help us, that we might live a life of victory in faith. Amen.